The Octorentry, a podcast exploring the meaning of ecology, spirit, and human relationship. From Southwestern Australia, I'm your host, Byron Joel. G'day, mob. Welcome back to the Octorentry podcast. Oh, I'm worried I'm, I might be developing a uh, catchphrase. <laughs> it's just not my intention. So, um, greetings, folks. Welcome back to the Octarine Tree podcast. Today, I am featuring a conversation that I really, 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 genuinely, really enjoyed with a South or North Western Australian musician called Nick Albrook. Nicholas Albrook is most well known as the frontman of Pond and once upon a time the bass player for Tame Impala, both bands that have done very very well. Many of you will know exactly who I'm talking about. Started off once upon a time in Mink Muscle Creek with uh, Kevin Parker from Tame Impala and many of the other chaps who are now in Pond. I really enjoyed this chat. He's a very endearing chappy. While I got you all here, I wanted to read something out to you. Where is it? Analytics. I'm going to my little podcast backer house thingy and reading the analytics. Now, I'm not going to give the numbers away. Size doesn't count. It's not about size, but it's just kind of cool. The Octarine Tree podcast has regular listeners in the following countries. Australia, United States, Germany, United Kingdom, Canada, Spain, Uruguay, Portugal, Mexico, New Zealand, Japan, Brazil, France, Ireland, Chile, Vietnam, Norway, Netherlands, Morocco, Belgium, South Africa, Thailand, Singapore, Qatar of all places. Shout out to my friends in Qatar, much appreciated. Uh, India, Denmark, Austria, Slovenia, Romania, Puerto Rico, French Polynesia, Panama, New Caledonia, Jordan, Indonesia, Guam, Greece, Finland, Colombia, and Switzerland. I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, so thanks everyone for listening. I really enjoyed making these. I really enjoyed doing it. I should probably thank my two Patreon <laughs> supporters, Mr. Nick Huggins and Bob Nekrasov. Thank you very much. Oh, and shout out to my two biggest fans. I get fan mail from these guys, Scaly and Delaney, regularly. In fact, it's starting to get a little creepy and inconvenient. And Jimmy, you may be listening to this on a treadmill, I'm not sure. I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation I had with Nick Albrook as much as I enjoyed having the conversation. I, I tell you, I really did really enjoy him. He's a lovely chap. In this chat, we discuss Nick growing up in remote Australia, starting his bands, leaving Tame Impala, magical antenna erections, Ursula Le Guin and synchronicity, unicorn semen and cerebral assholes. So uh, without a further ado, Nick Albrook. All right, Nicholas Albrook, welcome to the Octarine Tree podcast. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm really well, thank you, mate. I just mitigated flooding in my backyard because like we were saying just before I hit record, it's super wet in Perth at the moment. And um, yeah, winter's taken West Australians by surprise for the 215th year in a row. But other than that, it's... <laughs> we will never learn. We will never learn. How's London? 
Um, you know what? It's it's wet too. Um, but unlike WA crew, Londoners are very, very fucking used to it. Um, but it's kind of warm. It's weird, hey? It's like... Um, what, summer? Yeah. Yeah, it's been feeling disturbingly tropical. Yeah, you know, it's funny. London actually has a lower rainfall than Perth. Um, Perth has a rainfall of about 700 mil and London's about 100 mil less than that. But Perth has it all in one fell swoop in the wintertime and London, it just drizzles more or less constantly. Wait, we have, did you say London has less than Perth? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of counterintuitive, hey, but um, it's, it is the case unless I go and look that up on the internet after this and discover I've been mistaken for years. But I think that's the case. Far out. Man, I actually, um, I was at someone's, uh, at someone's house in Kent the other day and they had planted olive trees. Right. And I was like, that's the silliest thing I've ever heard. I was saying, but they were saying that they're actually planning for the future. Yeah, people people say that like they they plan for climate change and things getting drier, but the whole planet's not going to get drier. Shit's just going to go crazy everywhere. Yeah, it's going to get weird everywhere. It's not that everywhere's getting hotter and well drier anyway. So no, yeah, yeah, right. Maybe they'll work. I, yeah, I'm not sure, but I, they were saying, I mean, who knows if this is bullshit or not, but they were saying that British wines are starting to come into their own. It's a fucked way to think of it. <laughs> there was an era back in the, um, what they called the medieval warm period. England was like a huge producer of wine really? back when things got warm. Yeah, yeah, around 900 to 1200. I did not know that. Yeah. So we may be going back that way. We damned. Yeah, delicious Shit, English man. wine. Yeah, apparently the um, like the the but there's this I can't remember what is it, like Oxford Botanical Gardens or something. Mm. I was just reading something about them starting to put in some olive trees as well. Yeah, well, I mean so, it's, yeah. it's good to prepare, but who knows what direction it's going to go in. So um, you you hightailed to the UK. Was it to get away from lockdowns, or was it just for the hell of it? <laughs> no, my um, my girlfriend lives over here. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, and so I came back to, you know, to be together and all that stuff. Nice. And uh, you spent a fair bit of time in the UK over the years. Yeah, yeah. We lived together in um, we lived together. For two years, about four, four years ago. Yeah, okay. You dig London? I I do, man. I do. I um I got that I got that sort of inimitable inertia mm. of Fremantle life over the last two years. Um, yeah, yeah. Especially over COVID times, where like you know I've I really really got you know. I, like moss, moss started growing on me for sure. Um, yeah, and I and I forgot how much I I love this place and just um, I just been sort of you know looking about here mm. in London and just fucking God, it's so amazing. It's so rad. I mean, it's grey and smelly and <laughs> um, grumpy and fucked in all these ways, but it's just it's like truly brilliant. It's one of the great the great sort of monuments to, to culture. Yeah. Really, really destructive and awful culture, <laughs> but, like, still. 
I couldn't hack it, man. I, I went to London years ago and hightailed it after about a month and went down to Brighton and found a home down there. Mm. That's a mad town. I really love Brighton. I miss it. I'd love to go back to Brighton. But Fremantle, it's true, like, Fremantle and Perth are amazing places to call home and go home to. And it really, in many ways, feels like it doesn't change and you can slot back in and it's easy and everyone's walking around barefoot going to cafes and, mm. you know, having oh, man. soirees and whatnot. But it's, it's so gentle. Isn't it, though? It's so gentle, just like... I think the thing I never appreciated fully until living here was how... um. Yeah, like you said, everything is done on foot or by bicycle. There's no tube and, you know, it takes as long to get to my mates in like West London or whatever as it does to get to, um, you know, Durian Bay or whatever. Yeah, I mean, it's curious because you grew up in Derby, okay? Like Mm. did you, let's go actually the start at the beginning. Did you grow up in Perth, Perth? Or was it growing up in Derby? I was in Perth until I was about three. And then I started getting taken up for work stuff, my parents' work stuff a bit more. And then I think after a year of going up a few times, they just decided to stay. What was their work that took them up there? What do they do, if I may? Oh, of course. Um, Well, my dad... Were got a job for the Kimberley Land Council, right? Yeah. So it was I mean, it, not not the beginning, but pretty early. Mm-hmm. I think it was seventy eight that it started, but it was definitely like a super heady time, like the nineties, like Native Title Act yeah. and stuff. And my mum was writing her thesis on pastoral station, like Aboriginal. Mm-hmm. Stockman and how it sort of, you know, the the wage wage crisis, walk off and all that sort of. Stuff. Right. Okay. That, that's very interesting. So you grew up in an academic household with an appreciation for country and indigeneity and the kind of things that weren't quite being explicitly discussed in the Australian cultural dialogue at that time. Because for those listening overseas, we weren't taught a proper history. And, and I'm not sure how thorough the history lessons are in other places regarding in colonial parts of the world regarding the realities of what occurred. But in Australia, we weren't taught history. Like I did one unit on Aboriginal studies in like year 11 and it was very, very cursory mm. and kind of superficial. But so you grew up in a household with acad- academics yeah, yeah. who were engaged in that discussion and visiting, living in a place like Derby. So, you know, that's quite an um, introduction. Yeah, yeah. And, like, I I mean, we weren't being taught at, at school, even in Derby, which is really sad, mm. you know, because... I was the only the only gutty in my in my class first up, and then um, and it changed as I got older a little bit. It was more of the sort of, I guess there were more a couple more like, I mean most of the most of the other white kids around were pro- with parents also doing one or the other side of the native title battle. Right. But yeah, yeah, it still was it still wasn't taught. But I never really 
it took me so long to really appreciate what what a what a special teaching I had as a as a young fella. Like actually going to like staying out at Momjum, Bijadanga, and especially Jamadanga, mm. which is an incredible, incredible place like Mount Anderson, really close to the banks, the Fitzroy, yeah. and having old people who really, really cared for me and took me on as family. Just these incredible things like being being at bush meetings that I absolutely didn't understand the significance of. Like these are things that have carved the the political history of, of Australia. Mm. And watching all-night corroborees that I didn't understand really the significance of that. That's quite a unique experience, whether you're cognizant of actually what's going on or not as a kid. That must have been pretty formative. Yeah, I, I do look back and I did have an idea that it was special spiritually. Yeah. Especially the corroboree sort of things that I particularly remember in Mong and the spiritual weight of it yeah. was like enormous. The gravity of it would have been quite immediate. You don't even need to be able to translate what's going on linguistically or have any idea of the nuts and bolts of the the mechanics of the ritual no. but I imagine it would have been pretty impressive in and of itself like in a really immediate way yeah 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 and and anyone who's seen that sort of stuff would say the same thing but yeah it was they were fucking really good at it like yeah the athleticism and um yeah. passion and fire and dust and this and the long 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 songs yeah it's cool i did an interview with an australian archaeologist and anthropologist by the name of scott kane did you ever see the abc series on aboriginal australia it was narrated by ernie dingo who i had the pleasure to bump into the other day did you ever see it no i didn't it's worth a look man i'll send you a link afterwards on abc huh? yeah it's really good well cool. and scott kane was in it as consultant anthropologist and he wrote the book on it and i was talking to him and i was lamenting the fact as an australian european indigenous or otherwise how drastically how much change has occurred and how the cultures that existed on this landscape the degree to which they've been decimated and he was saying you know that's true mm. got to go through the grief of that and learn to deal with it in one's own way he also said, be warned by the fact that there are still massive, intact, continuous cultural forms that are going on, in particular in the deep desert regions where there are huge annual ceremonies yeah. that no one who isn't meant to be there goes there or even knows about it, like massive areas that are just shut down and no one can get in mm. where this law is enacted. I was really warned to hear that. Totally. Yeah, yeah, I've, yeah, totally. I, I've had to, I mean, I've done work since with my folks and, and it, yeah, it depends. You can't, you can't do it when law's on. It's just like, it's all off. Mm. That's like still fairly close to Derby or Port Headland and stuff. So for those who don't know, where, where is Derby? Because there's mob from around the world who won't know where Derby is. Northwest Australia. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah kimberley like 280 kilometers up the road from broome okay maybe some people have visited broome i actually met someone the other day i was doing helping my you know father-in-law's garden and yeah. one of the other gardeners this is in kent yeah 
in Faversham. Yeah. He was like, I've, you know, I've been to Australia. I went to, uh, did a big tour all around. He was like, I went to Broome. Right. like, yeah. no shit. Yeah. Okay, so he had a taste. So people have gone there. Yeah. <laughs> Man, so many English people have seen so much of Australia. Probably more than the average Australian. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy talking to these people. How old were you when you left Derby? Um, 13. Okay, so you spent a good 10 years of your most formative years in and out of there. Yeah, yeah. We just came down to Perth for, for Christmases. You ended up going to school in Perth. Is that why you came down, like high school at 13? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think I think my folks had seen the sort of teenage derby experience. Yeah. And um, thought they'd spare me of that. Yeah, well, regional Australia has a lot of things going for it and a lot of beauty and a lot of expanse and whatnot, but the opportunities and experiences for kids can be pretty um, challenging. So I kind of I understand their um, decision-making. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I just think there's, I mean, looking looking back on my life so far, I reckon from 13 to 30 for me, we should just be, like, not experienced in, in somewhere that remote. <laughs> yeah. That's the big city years. You know? And I would like to get to that, actually, because you've had the kind of taste of big city experience of many places around the world that not that many people have had. Yeah. So with your mum doing her thesis and your dad being on the Kimberley Land Council you were exposed to and bonded with significant individuals up there in the Indigenous community, like you mentioned the other day to me in an email. Is, is it Daragar Watson? Is that how I pronounce it? Yeah. They are ostensibly family to you. Yeah. Oh, man, absolutely. The Watsons are dear family. Yeah, that's it, family. Um, yeah. They're really important and just care for, care for me and I care for them deeply. You know, there are plenty of others like... Um, my, I don't know, Nana, I guess. Yeah. She's gone now, but um, she um, was really, really important, like an old, seriously legitimate stock woman. Yeah. Um, and she actually kept on telling, she, she got me my first dog. Right. Because she kept warning my mum that my... Leon was like broken, like my spirit. Really, this little boy, and um, he needed he needs a dog. And Mum was like working too hard. That's There's, fucking interesting, dude. Yeah, there was too much shit going on with KLC and thesis, and Mum was like, "No, nah, we can't, we can't have a dog right now. It's ridiculous. Like we've only got a rental home." Hmm. And she was just like. Nana just couldn't, couldn't like obviously wouldn't accept it. Like it's completely unacceptable. This child's spirit is literally broken. Like this is an emergency. Wow. She went to. She's old by this point, like an old woman, and we were just leaving the place where she was living, like really, really remote. And she came back up to the car, and like I was in the back seat. And she just sort of said goodbye to mum and then opened up the door to me and, like, put this wrapped-up puppy dog secretly on my lap. Wow. And, like, said, like, don't don't tell your mum, you know, don't tell mum. And, like, 
you know, um, an hour or what, half an hour down the road, mum noticed that I was being, you know, disconcertingly quiet and turned around and there was a fucking puppy dog sitting there and she's like, what in God's name? And turned around, went back to Nana's place and was like, what is going on? Why is there a dog in my car? And it turned out she had gone to another farm property, Mm. like crossed the fence, gone into the farmhouse and stolen their dog. No way. (laughs) And come all the way back and just put it in the car for me. I suppose she thought it was important enough. But what do you take from that? Like now in retrospect as an adult, this very elderly woman with a pretty strong connection to land saying what she did about you, about diagnosis and the prognosis of needing an animal. Have you thought about that much? Totally. I think about it so much. And we didn't take that dog. We, you know, gave it back to... Mm the people who own the dog. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then got um, immediately got a, a puppy for me. Okay. And that that was so important. Anyone who knows me well would know about my, my childhood dog. It was such an important part of my life, this red Kelpie mm. called Louie. Mm. I think about how she saw that a lot, but it's really... I, uh, it's really hard to articulate, I suppose, yeah. the like the depth of the mystery, and the, but also the the immediate obviousness of it. Right. Yeah, I guess there's something there's something in this sort of like psychic spiritual world that's at once um, right, like in plain sight and completely invisible. That's so true. Yeah, and it's, I guess I think about how a lot of our, or, you know, some people's lack of, you know, connectivity and being, like, amazed at people's, like, witchy, Mm. you know, psychic abilities is just being actively denying stuff or, like, closing your eyes and just trying not to see it because it's inconvenient or... um. Or doesn't align with what you've been taught or something but like if you're actually looking at what's happening right in front of you it is like magic yeah it's funny man like growing up in australia as a sensitive kid any point before i don't know the last 10 years maybe where there's been a bit of fair bit of cultural change in mm. australia it, it's not easy mm. if you were that weird or sensitive kid in Australia, you know, I had that experience. My my feelers were out, my antennas were up, and it just wasn't reflected back to mm. me. You're just a fucking weirdo. Yeah, totally. It that ain't easy. It's not easy in a culture like Australian culture has been. Contemporary Australian culture has been. Yeah, yeah, and I, I really, I really hear you with um, for people like me and you. I feel like we're pretty similar. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 33. I'm 40. Well, it's, you know, same ballpark. We're, yeah. we're still on that side of the generational divide mm. that has, uh, was brought up to think drinking is cool or something like that, you know? Or the only option. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, I totally hear you. And, and I really feel like it's not, it's not even just, um, just Australian or, Anglo-Euro. 
European kind of culture. It's also, it's all, it's very very masculine. Things like spirituality and 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 magic and um, and mystery and healing are things that are sort of confined to the realm of the feminine and often and they seem to be like you know derided because of this like we we don't understand it we don't understand the power of these things so i guess you know put a tax on it and um completely fucking ignore it yeah give it a really obscure name yeah, make, <laughs> make fun of it, or I see it like the the Disneyfication of magic. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's at best some fantasy plaything, you know, and, and it has no real efficacy or applicability or reality. It's just this kind of make believe delusion. Yeah, yeah. Jung said it. He said it, man. I'm a big fan of Carl Jung, and he said, you know, in his book Modern Man in Search of a Soul, he said basically what's eating modern man is the fact that they have discarded the mythopoetic. They've just trashed it, thrown it out mm. as being um, yeah. juvenile and disposable and it's fucking eating yeah, us yeah. as a result because it's not disposable, it's a nutrient. Oh, and it and it's kept on eating us, hasn't it? Absolutely. I still stand by yeah. it. I think it's one of the two or three things that is the cause of the pathologies fucking with our collective heads. Mm, mm, absolutely. No, this pragmatism like our outrageous pragmatism, I guess maybe it's the kind of thing that allows people like uh, Gina Reinhardt or whatever <laughs> to like to look at something full of, of soul and wonder and um, and think I, I could just I could destroy that or for a bum. You know. Yeah, I mean not just her, it's all, all around the world, you know. And and yeah. I think I think you and Jung are right. Okay, so so you left Derby. Where did you go to school in Perth? Man, I went to the Oso Posh Christchurch Grammar School. Oh, I know it very well. Yeah, which was a fucking crazy jump to go to go from. Well, I imagine, man. I mean, I know the area well. I was born and raised around there. I went to JTC. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. No. For those who don't know, Christchurch Grammar School is one of the top two prestigious um, all-boy colleges in Perth. So that must have been a head fuck coming from Derby. It was so it was so weird. Yeah, I hadn't worn shoes to school in <laughs> w- once in my life. Right. You sound <laughs> like my mum. Um. <laughs> anyway, go on. <laughs> yeah, I literally hadn't worn shoes to school um, and I rocked up and I had a bowl cut, a funny accent. I said deadly. Deadly. Um, I said deadly when all of these new kids were saying sick. Sick. They're saying sick. And I was like, what the fuck is going on? Why are they saying this? And they were like, I don't know. They seemed like cool. Like they play like violent video games and like had like played electric guitar or something like that and had like funky shoes. It's like, man, these guys are serious. They're like (laughs) grown-ups. Had you discovered music at that stage? Yeah, um, but only to the extent of like I had a silver chair CD, <laughs> and I would I would rock out yeah. 
every time, every whenever I was at home uh-huh. in Derby when my parents were out, I'd, you know, crank it up, yeah. crank it up and listen to Freak and, um, and like air guitar myself into like a, a, a sweat puddle. Have you had um, opportunity to tell Daniel Johns this? No, I never have. I wish. Yeah. He was my fucking hero. I loved Johnsy. When their first single came out, it blew my mind because they were just kids at the time. Yeah, I, I, that, that album, Freak Show, was just so big for me. And like, it was just, it's, it's a, it was a very primal connection with that music because there wasn't really much of a social influence for me in Derby. Right. It was just like purely, I, I heard it, I saw it. And I thought, for whatever reason, it was badass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, my favourite tune was The Door. <laughs> yeah, that was an absolute cracker. I love that song. Yeah, yeah, I know that song. Really, really simple kind of three-chord Led Zeppelin-y kind of thing. I really like that one. So zeppelin yeah, yeah, yeah. They did a great live version of it at Luna Park in Melbourne. At Luna Park. It's a great version of that song. When did you first cross paths with the greater spinning top Frio Perth music family mob that you are heavily entrenched in? What was the kind of genesis of that whole scene? I suppose it was like Mink Muscle Creek had sort of gone through some like kind of really some pretty shitty high school iterations. Okay, so it was that early though? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like end of high school, yep. you know, yep. year 12. But it would have been called Electric Blue Acid Dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. It's, it's great. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, of course, none of us had ever, like, ever gone anywhere, you know, anywhere near acid. acid. Yeah, okay. Um, but we loved the idea of it. Mm-hmm. You know, you see, you see Hendrix and stuff. At that age, it's probably a good thing that you hadn't gone <laughs> Yeah. Oh, Definitely. But then we had joined a band competition and we had to change our name to Mink Muscle Creek. Who's we? Uh, that was like me. I guess by then it was, oh, it was Nathan Buckley, mm. Sam Davenport, Steve Summerlin, who we continued on, in Mink Muscle Creek. On bass. I remember Steve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Richard Ingham. But, yeah, anyway, so we kept playing and stuff. We changed it to Mink Muscle Creek and then we were in another band competition against the DD Dumbs that was um, uh-huh. yep. Kev. Yep. And by this point, Joe Ryan had joined Mink Muscle Creek. We beat Kev. Yes. <laughs> um I know, finally. And look, look where it's look where it's taken us and look what happened to them. Yeah. I mean, the evidence... The evidence is he there. He laughs last. So yeah, go for second place. I guess is what the um, what the precedent is saying. Mm-hmm. You've done it right. But yeah, then we um, Kev joined Mink Muscle Creek, and um, one of our members joined his band, and then he changed the name of the Deedee Dumbs to Tame Impala. And then I joined Tame Impala. Uh-huh. And then Jay Watson 
we met him around that time and he Where'd Jay come from? He came from Northam. He was playing ah. he was playing in the Novocanes, but he like um I remember them. He moved out of home when he was like sixteen or something like that. And came and slept at on the couch in our share house for like three years. And yeah, and I guess at that time our manager Jody Stickers. Yeah. She had started managing Mink Muscle Creek and then started doing Tame as well because, you know, we basically all had the same members so it didn't make sense to do one and not the other. And um, then it all kicked off. I remember Melange, my band, did gigs with DD Dums and Mink Muscle at, like, the Hyde Park and the Norfolk basement. And I can can remember. Sick. I remember this Mink Muscle gig and something I'll tell my kids is like the time Tame and Parlor Mink Muscle Pond Mob opened for my band. <laughs> um, I remember you guys in Mink Muscle at the Norfolk basement. And it was like the audience was like half parents <laughs> and you were all like fluttering around barefoot on stage and you were playing flute. And I remember thinking, what the fuck? Yeah, watching the evolution of that whole scene since something that occurred to me, actually, before I go there, that's when I saw you guys play. I'm going to burp. This is one of those moments I'm going to need to edit out. I saw (laughs) in you uh, magic. I was like, okay, this cat, he lives in the mythopoetic. Oh, that's so kind. I just saw your your antennas were fully extended and that's when I bought that book for you. Oh, man, that's so lovely of you. No, that's what I saw and I went out and bought the book that made a huge influence on me magically, which was Ursula Le Guin's Wizard of Earthsea. I meant to give it to you, but our paths didn't cross. And then I found it the other day going through an old box from the garage. I was like, that's the book I bought Allbrook, but our paths didn't cross again. So I was like, ah, here it is. I was like, great, cool. So I went and dropped it on your doorstep. Bro, this is so, look, I'm going to have to go into this now because that's cool. This discussion of like antennas being up to the vibration or whatever the fuck you call it. Um, Mm -hmm. And the fact that you seeing that made you buy that book Mm. and it got lost. Yeah. And then when you gave, when you put it on my, on my doorstep, like what, a couple of months ago. Yeah. Yeah. That was like just around that time. I was really actually going through a bit of a crisis. Okay. And really struggling with this idea of like enjoyment of the things I always enjoyed, reading, creating, music, film, mm. all this stuff. And I was being, I was getting really, really stressed because I suddenly had a bit more time on my hands and I was like working so hard on my own creativity that it was actually stressing me out yeah. and I was really just like freaking out about what was, what this feeling was, and right. and then you dropped that book off, and I was like, I'm just gonna do what I used to do back in the day, and just read, just sit there and at breakfast for two hours and just read 
fantasy books. (laughs) And suddenly it just cracked open this whole thing of like just doing what is sheer teenage pleasure. You know, you listen to... I started listening to like UK garage and jungle things when I was driving around. Cause I was just like, this is fucking sick. And it makes my body burst. And I was reading Ursula Le Guin again because I couldn't fucking put it down. And, um, it basically showed me that I'd been doing, letting so much of this stuff that was, uh, that was like pure heart activity for me become something that was like self-advancement or self-betterment. Some agenda to it. I'd listen to music that would give, that would give me ideas or read books that would, um, that would be like inspiring towards a direction or towards an end point. Right. But that is so crazy that that's the way it happened because it fucking flew back into my life at the exact moment when it needed to. I'm really glad to hear that. It's my pleasure. It's strange. I don't think that's happened to me before where I've had an intention that I've actioned that then sat on the shelf for 15 years and then was like, okay, now's the time. Dropped it off. (laughs) And it was just the perfect time. It was so perfect. I had no idea that that's what it was going to be. It was just like, oh, here's the book again. I might as well drop it off. Your, ante- your antenna was, was up. Yeah, they do that sometimes. <laughs> so another thing that I've noticed, I'm 40, you're 33. There was something I noticed about you guys, you being a, a bit younger than myself and other bands as you were coming up because I kind of witnessed D.D. Dums, Mink Muscle, etc. I copped the later end of the influence of the whole Gen X thing, the whole quote-unquote alternative music scene in the 90s. Like I grew up in that where I was young enough to be really influenced by it but old enough for it to kind of stamp itself in a way as an idea I don't know, I'm not going to articulate this well, but I'll cut to the chase. Part of that ethos, that musical ethos in the 90s, there was a really strong divide between alternative and mainstream music. A really, really like hard boundary Mm. between what's cool and what's not cool. Mm -hmm. And what I saw in you guys, in your mob, was a dissolving of that and just this real like inclusive boundary dissolving just incorporate anything yeah. is actually a more mature musical position because you're not holding your hand up excluding four-fifths of the creative environment because it's uncool. Mm. Does that make sense? It really does, yeah. I can sort of think of like a couple of sort of watershed things that really changed because I definitely had that especially early on definitely had that like really really strict binary of like cool and alternative and mainstream and not I think that's actually it's indicative of teenagehood and early 20s actually it might not just be a generational thing I think it was Mm. it was really strong in quote unquote gen x but it's also like a a adolescent thing Mm. but do go on yeah maybe i really remember like um pond and tame pretty early Mm. in our in our journey from my like vantage point in pond life just having this period where we sort of stopped wanting to resemble you know Hawkwind and 
Guru Guru and um, Faust and stuff like that. And all of a sudden on like the flip of a dime, it was like Prince Fleetwood Mac. Yeah, exactly. I think a really big part of that was like we, I mean, there were lots of things. It was for me um, Outcast. Yeah. And that, that album, The Love Below, when Hey Ya was like the biggest song in the world. Yep. But listening to the whole album, it was like, this is absolutely fucking bizarre and hilarious and conceptual and brightly coloured psychedelic madness that could be like critically acclaimed, completely, completely confusing and bewildering and like the biggest pop hit in the world. And that came at the same time, or like for me, thinking about it and being really into it came at a similar time to the Mighty Boosh and yeah. um, and MGMT. Yeah, yeah. And it was all these things colliding, like brightness and colour and fun. Yeah. I was about to say colour. That's what it seems to me. It was like a, a re-injection of colour, like yeah. the 90s. And 2000s had this, uh, yeah, everyone was just so busy being fucking edgy. Yeah. It kind of sucked the joy out of things a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, but where's the colour? The unicorn semen, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. I love that. I love unicorn semen. Same. That kills me. I've got a big, a big thing about it. <laughs> you know, you're a sensitive cat. And you spent years growing up in the far northwest of Western Australia. Yeah. What's it like? Because you spend a bit of time now, you know, traveling the world and attending festivals and gigs and God knows what else kind of bizarre after parties. (laughs) And I don't know what kind of shit you guys get into. But that's a very urbane environment, you know, like the international glitterati and whatnot. Yeah. Australians have a famous like laid backness. Okay. Mm. And I mean, Australians from big cities have a famous, are famously laid back. Yeah. And you're a cat with, you know, erect antennas <laughs> who spent his formative years in one of the last true wildernesses in the developed world. Yeah. How does that meet? Like, what's it like? Yeah. I don't even know how I'm meant to ask this question. I, I think I get you. I think I get you. It actually took me a really long time. Um, a really long time, I mean until like maybe even the last couple of years to realise properly what everyone else who's met me around the world realises and that's that I'm I'm really weird. Okay. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I think there has been, like I was for a long time, you know, going to doing the whole big band thing, you know, decadent parties in New York or whatever. I don't know. Yeah, you know, that know, whole bit. Blah, blah. I just kind of tried to block everything out and go along with it and enjoy it and think it's all right. But the reality is looking back at it, I remember so many times where people in that in that sort of thing reacted to me like, whoa, Mm. either really like positively mm. or, or or 
not, usually positively, I guess. Yeah. I remember the guy from, I remember Tom from Kasabian, the first time he saw me was like, Jesus Christ, what the fuck is that? It looks like something from Dark Crystal. Jesus. <laughs> right. And I was like, oh, what? <laughs> um, that's a little tactless, I guess, but anyhow. Yeah, but that's their, that's their shtick. Lovely guys. <laughs> The collision of this, uh, of me and that's those sort of situations actually really, you know, it really did actually fuck me up for a little bit as which is something that I didn't even, it was probably too hard to, um, to look at in my own personal space, like in my, my, my interior truth, it was just too, it was too hard to really Hmm. look at and acknowledge. But, um, with the power of hindsight, I can look back and see that it was way, way too intense. And I, there was so much, it was such a strange place and I'm such a, I was such a sensitive guy, I am such a sensitive guy that it, it, you know, it really physically and mentally rocked the boat. Yeah. Um, more than all the, all the other guys in. Does that have anything to do with why you dropped out of time? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course. Exhausted. Yeah. And, um not able to take the whole thing as much uh, as much of a fun a fun ride a fun journey I was still trying to do that but at the same time every day and every night I'd be having this sort of moral person you know self-flagellation of like my part in a sick sad world and um would you know but I also treated that um treated that sort of sadness and discontentedness in the wrong way how so oh you know just by making it um numb right okay uh and then eventually had to had to just bottom out and leave but yeah, that that is what happened when an overly sensitive um, guy who grew up in the middle of nowhere with his dog for a best friend, mm. surrounded by the deep spirits of mm. millennia, yeah. the ancient <laughs> gods, yeah. <laughs> is suddenly like being being applauded and plied with um drugs and alcohol and um and uh being told you're you're great. It's all very confusing. Yeah. Yeah, it's a weird trip, man. Really. As you can imagine. I figure like because mm-hmm. I haven't really openly talked about mm-hmm. or like that openly talked about leaving tame and all that stuff i may as well add yeah the thing that was really i just remember that i just had a really intense feeling of like uh, of 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 not deserving ah. 
um, and and a real um, shame at the really privilege of being of of being um, treated so well, like okay. And I was like, te- like really, really terrified, like to the point of of pathology yeah. at the time of of becoming um, useless. Okay. So, so I used to like, you know, every time I'd have to go, I, I'd arrive in a new city. I would like always, you know, instead, even though I had the money to, to catch a taxi, I would always catch like buses and carry all my gear and just make like a really, really, <laughs> just doing all these all these weird little like menial tasks just to try and prove to myself that I was still like a capable functioning member of society right um and i remember that was what was that was what really like got deep into my brain and made me feel start started making me feel terrible Okay. Until eventually I had to leave and come back to Perth and get a job at Hollywood Hospital as an orderly. Oh, did you? Okay. <laughs> now that's really interesting. Okay. Do you have an arsehole in your head like I do? What, what do you mean? Like is there, we, you know, you said self-flagellating. I mean, is that something, was that just a period that you went through and it was something yeah. you had to work through or is there is there like a something cracking in the whip a little too hard a little too often oh it's it's a yeah no it's i thought you meant like um i i got a really different image when you said this asshole in your head <laughs> okay yeah but yes okay, yeah. <laughs> now that you were on the same page yes i do okay um Totally, like um, guilt has been this and self-doubt has been this like a really pervasive part of my life and um, yeah. and it could be like endlessly unpacked. Mm. I'm sure it would take like years of, y- years of therapy going in and out of um, uh, colonizer guilt and um, mm, okay. uh, yeah. privilege and personal family. That's probably got something to do with it. Mm. But yeah, the asshole has been has has had a big part of my life. I'm glad that you're at least aware of it. I mean, many of us have an asshole in their heads. I got one. And without sounding like a cheap psychotherapist, I guess the first step is recognizing it. Mm. Where are you at now with your asshole? <laughs> your cerebral asshole. Uh, I've um, we've actually been doing a lot more talking. Good. <laughs> um, it's been a lot better. My um, my girlfriend, as as often happens, being being in like a true kind of lifetime relationship mm. has made um has made it necessary to look at parts of myself that I 
could never really look at, mm. such as the asshole, yeah. which works in so many ways. Don't do that, man. The ladies, I mean, we talk about erect antenna. The ladies, um, their antennas are ten times the size of most of us blokes. They pick up on things <laughs> and they don't let us get away with it. It can sometimes be cold medicine, but it's they're fucking brilliant in that respect. <laughs> yeah, as as my as my friend, my very wise friend Ellie said, men, it's shocking how inferior they are. <laughs> it's re- it's remarkable. It's remarkable. I'll take that. I'll take that, actually. <laughs> Mate, I've, I've actually, truth be known, I've really fucking enjoyed this discussion. I've done a couple of dozen of these little podcasts over the last few months since taking the initiative, and um, this is by far one of my favourites. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, I feel, I really felt like we could have kept talking for ages. That was um, It, it was actually really really easy and free-flowing yeah i'm glad i'm glad i feel the same way and i don't think you're like something out of the dark crystal mate i think you're fucking gorgeous <laughs> i think you've got beautiful antennas you, i think you're a bit of a canary in the cultural mind i hope that the cerebral asshole in your head <laughs> the volume gets turned down because i think you're fucking great thanks bro you too no worries man all right all the best be in touch all right Sleep.